Welcome to the Business Big Bang Theory, a podcast from the Business Centre where we talk about all things small business. My name is Gordon Whitehead. I'm a business advisor from the Business Centre. For those people who don't know the Business Centre, we're a not-for-profit. I've been working with small business for the last 35 years in Northern New South Wales. And this is the reason why we decided to produce a series that will cover a number of areas around disruption and business disruption. It's not just about the coronavirus, but it's all the other areas that we've suffered over the last few years. And this includes fire as well as drought. Today's guest is Michelle Dawson. She's a principal lawyer from DWF. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Gordon. Now, to tell everyone, what do you do? What's uh, you're a workplace lawyer? What do you do? Yeah, sure. So essentially, my practice is helping businesses uh, navigate all workplace issues. So anything from the front end in terms of interpreting awards, enterprise agreements, putting contracts and policies um, and protocols into place, all the way through an employment relationship and out the other side to uh, all termination disputes and those sorts of things. So in terms of the workplace space, uh, over the course of my uh, 15 or so years of practice exclusively in this area. There's not a lot that I haven't seen, except for perhaps, of course, COVID-19. And this is why we're here. Now, the first thing I want to ask you about for business, now the new norm is basic disruption. We've had fire, we've had drought. So what are the key areas should a business start looking at to plan for disruption? Yeah, sure. Look, essentially the things that businesses need to look at are, are largely pragmatic, practical and operational. And it's necessary to outline this discussion, I think, to, to traverse some of those things. But I don't propose to get into the operational side of things. I understand that uh, later on in the series we'll have uh, Perform HR dedicated for that purpose. But just to sort of set the scene for the legal things that, that we need to run through today, some of the things that businesses need to consider when they are experiencing disruption such as what we're currently seeing with COVID-19 are um, considering and implementing strategies around their business continuity. Now that obviously involves numerous things. One of the things that we've really seen become mobilised in recent time is people analysing and implementing their working from home capabilities to the extent that that's something that's compatible with their business and the employees that they have within their business. The parameters that need to sort of be considered around all of that too is whether or not the business has in place the appropriate policies and the appropriate uh, technology infrastructure to be able to facilitate those things. So one of the problems that uh, that we understand some of our clients to be having is that um, whilst they might have the technology and have the use to having some element or proportion of their workforce working from home, they're discovering that perhaps they don't have the uh, infrastructure in place to be able to facilitate all of their workforce or a significantly larger proportion of their workforce to be working from home. Um, so we're seeing a lot of activity in, in that space and that's obviously a really important um, thing for businesses to, to get across, particularly in the context of disruption. The other thing is um, looking at, in the event of, of any closure, what key staff are going to be required to remain? 
who are those key staff, what about those key staff might actually make them key and what pragmatic difficulties might be encountered in actually having those staff remaining. There are also important considerations to be had in terms of identifying and, and understanding that you need key staff around in terms of how you're going to protect those staff because particularly in the COVID-19 situation there are obviously health and safety considerations to be had around those things. One of the things that we're seeing a number of our clients perhaps more so in the professional services and office based work environments they are implementing workforce rotation strategies at the moment so separating their core workforce into different groups and putting them on rotational arrangements and that is um, is essentially to a significant extent designed to protect the workers. Of course, we need to consider um, when we're looking at disruption, whether there's a need to scale down. And, you know, those sorts of things are things that will be, you know, spoken about, I'm sure, from an operational point of view later in the series. But, you know, the things that you can do before you actually get to the point of having to lay people off or make people redundant, those things being, you know, the reduction of supplementary labour, perhaps altering rosters, placing moratoriums or bans on a temporary basis on things like overtime and people working penalty shifts and consider what other arrangements might be able to be reached in relation to a general reduction of hours across the um, employees within the business. Now with some of the legal obligations, so if we're going to have a workforce that potentially is working more from home, is there any legal obligations like say work health safety policy that needs to be understand the work environment that they're working from home? Yeah, look, um, work health and safety is critical in, in these decisions. Obviously when you have people working in your premises it's a lot easier to gather some control and implement controls over the the surroundings from a practical point of view, you know, things even getting down to the nitty gritty of ergonomics. That's obviously a lot more difficult to do when you have people working remotely. Obviously having appropriate working from home policies and procedures in place which incorporate some of the workplace health and safety considerations and parameters is really important in all of that. Making sure that employees understand the expectations of the workspace that they create for themselves at home and that they understand that they are responsible and it's necessary for them to communicate any potential risks that they might assess as, as actually being in existence in those places. So um, it certainly creates a whole new paradigm, particularly for businesses who haven't traditionally as yet done a lot of uh, having employees work from home. Is there any um, key processes you recommend that employers start introducing now in accordance with work health safety? Yeah, so it's, the, the principal thing around work health and safety for employers, it's understanding what the obligations are is really critical and that goes for anything in, in relation to the law. It's very hard to strategize and implement appropriate processes if you don't understand exactly what the legal parameters and obligations and in fact rights from the employee side of things are there. So the first thing, particularly in the context of the COVID-19 situation at present, it's really important for employers to stay up to date and act consistently 
directly with guidance that's issued by the government. Now that's a moving feast, it's changing on a highly regular basis and essentially each time that changes it's likely that it will require some form of response action. So understanding what the government expectations are is, is one element of that. Of course being across your statutory obligations around safety as an employer is also incredibly important and understanding at a very basic level that the duty of an employer is to keep the risk to workers as low as is reasonably practicable. You know, there are things that should be happening like workplace risk assessments, which is um, an important thing around safety and not just making the assessments, but implementing any measures that need to be implemented in order to manage those safety risks. And that would extend to and include the working from home scenarios that we, uh, that we spoke about. The other thing that's really critical in this context, and it's a practical thing, but it also feeds into a legal thing and that is communication with the workforce. Obviously keeping people informed of relevant government guidance and what you're doing in the context of that and how it is that you're going to protect them is really important. It's important not only in, in the ordinary general sense but it's important from the point of view that the risks to health and safety here are not limited for employees to the risk of them getting infected by this disease. There's also a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety amongst the community and that doesn't stop at our employees. And we need to be ensuring that our communication strategies are such that we can have some insight into enabling us to monitor the health and, and, and safety of people from a mental and emotional um, and psychological standpoint as well. Let's talk all things small business. For some practical advice and direction, DM us on Facebook or Instagram at The Business Centre. This is a case of it's changing all the time. So is there any place where employers can actually go or the best place to actually start looking at this information other than calling yourself up every five minutes on your mobile phone or a particular yep. site you recommend going to? Yeah, look, the absolute best source of information at the moment, particularly given how quickly it's moving, is government. So get onto the federal government's website, get onto your state government website and ensure that you're getting the information essentially from the horse's mouth. Any information that you get outside of that in terms of remaining topical and on the pulse as to what the government's doing is likely to be delayed from the source information and you always have that impact and potential risk around the Chinese whispers factor. Um, so the source information being directly from the government at the moment is the most important thing for employers to be across and that's where they should be getting their information in the first instance. All right, getting right down to the nitty gritty, um, we, a lot of businesses starting to look at how can I reduce and get down to a skeleton staff. What leave can a staff legally take on what they've got to consider in this area? Yeah, yep. So there's a lot of different considerations around around those things and it's actually not as simple um, an answer as it perhaps should be. Essentially, there's so many different sets of circumstances that are going to apply here. So you're going to have the interaction of people who 
aren't sick but need to self-isolate for whatever reason, then that begs the question, well, if they aren't sick, are they entitled to access their personal leave, which is regularly referred to as sick leave? And, and the short answer around that is, well, generally not. If they're not sick, then they shouldn't necessarily be placed on sick leave. However, someone who is in fact sick would essentially have and, and needs to self-isolate would you know, be on the other side of the coin there and would certainly um, be entitled to their personal leave. But you know, then that extends and you've got people who need to be at home to look after people in their families who might be sick or who might need care in emergency situations. And you know, we're seeing overseas in particular that a lot of schools are closing, which is obviously feeding into a child care situation yep. and questions around whether or not the person is entitled to carer's leave. And in some respects, the personal circumstances of the people are really relevant to determining the answer to that question. Largely, it's a situation of when determining what leave a person is entitled to take in the circumstances, it really depends upon exactly what those circumstances that are specific to that person actually are. We're also seeing a lot of um, and getting a lot of requests through in relation to annual leave. Can we, you know, force our employees to be taking annual leave um, and those sorts of things? Uh, generally speaking, annual leave is something that, that's a mutual agreement between employers and employees around the time at which it, it's taken. And so there generally aren't any direct rights of the employer to insist upon an employee taking um, taking annual leave. So there's, um, there's a lot of uh, issues to be traversed in individual circumstances, not only individual circumstances referable to the employees, but also individual circumstances referable to an employer's business arrangements, including what's in their employment contracts in some respects, what's in any industrial instrument such as an award or an enterprise agreement that may underpin the employment relationship, um, what might be comprised in an employer's policies. So it's, it's actually quite a difficult thing to give a blanket answer to what employers are entitled to in what circumstances for that reason. I assume there's going to be a lot of grey area in that leave in you know, I've got a snippety nose. Do um, employees need um, doctor's certificates, especially when the stress is on the, the health systems? But we have carers leave. Now, is there any boundaries that you recommend? Because I think nowadays we carers leave and parental leave, we're going to have also extended family. If your parents are elderly and they potentially more at risk. Is there any boundaries or any help they can or advice on that area there to maybe extend it or Essentially, um, a personal leave entitlement is a, is a finite thing. So most employees, as a matter of, uh, of statute, are entitled, if they're full-time employees, to 10 days personal leave per year. That accumulates from year to year. A lot of those considerations come down to just how much accumulated personal leave entitlement one may have. Certainly, you know, the fact that many grandparents are currently falling within a high-risk category, it's certainly going to impact upon on the available alternative childcare arrangements that are going to exist for people. There are also um, considerations to be had, you know, even if someone doesn't perhaps have enough personal leave to utilise in circumstances where they need to care for their children or for elderly people who might be a member of their immediate household and might otherwise entitle them to parental leave, there's also considerations that need to be made around the um, anti-discrimination provisions and obligations 
in each of the states and at a, and at a federal level too around um, family responsibilities. You know, if someone doesn't have enough leave and you're, you may ultimately have a broad brush approach whereby you say, look, if you don't have any personal leave, you're not, we're not letting you have any time off work, you need to be here. That may actually be infringing the obligations to look at and make reasonable adjustments or accommodations um, for people who do have family or carers' responsibilities. So there are a lot of different layers of things at play in employer business decision making around these things. And that's why getting guidance where you can is really important, but getting advice that's specific to your business, to your employees, to your specific circumstances in each case is a really important thing because it's very easy to get it wrong. And the ramifications for employers of getting things like this wrong, where it runs the risk of contravening in particular any uh, provision of the Fair Work Act or any provision of a modern award or an enterprise agreement, carries with it some um, civil remedy provisions which um, no employer wants to find themselves on the foul side of. Create your own big bang and see your business idea come to life. Our online course, Start Your Own Business, helps you learn the basics in marketing, compliance, modelling and small business finances. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, you can use the code BIGBANG to access the Start Your Own Business course online for free at businesscentre.com.au. Hospitality, they've gone through a lot of the, the drought and fire in around the tourism areas, but now with the uh, coronavirus, there a lot's happening in that space. Is there any specific areas or examples in the hospitality that you can, employers can use to help burden, especially with uh, a lot of casual workers? It's a very difficult thing. I think each industry is faring differently in the face of each different disruption event that we're encountering. And unfortunately, in many respects in that regard, the hospitality hospitality industry is at the the face of that and and feel a significant brunt of that. Unfortunately, it is casual workers Mm. who ultimately are the first to feel feel the pinch in the hospitality sector. It is one of the um, sectors where in Australia it's it's heavily casualised and, you know, casual labour is generally the first form of labour to to go or to be cut back because that is the business's best strategic um, decision around that. Now, there's a lot of political overlay to, to a lot of that. Um, too, but essentially the workforce planning advice around that and the continuity planning advice around that is largely going to be practical and it's uh, essentially uh, the sort of thing that um, that businesses should be taking some advice around, but I think it's inevitable that the casuals are going to um, feel the first inevitable brunt of, of that, if not already. What about if an employee rings up and says, I want to stay home because of precautionary reasons, or an employer decides to say, hey, we think you've got a sniffle, you can stay at home. Again, um, that's going to be contingent upon the individual facts and circumstances specifically behind the reason why the person needs to stay at home. If they want to stay at home as a precaution, the answer to the question may be different if they are you know, in a high risk category, so perhaps someone who is over 70, someone who may be pregnant, someone with compromised immune uh, systems uh, or a compromised immune system, those sorts of people are probably going to be in a position where they may be able to access their personal leave in this sort of scenario. But someone who wants to stay at home as a precaution but isn't 
sick. The principal question for employers at the outset is, well, can this person work from home? Which obviously in the hospitality sector is very rarely able to, to be a thing and there are other industries in the same boat there. If the person can work from home, then facilitating them to be able to work from home is important. But the critical aspect to being able to make a decision around that for employers is to really understand why it is that the employee wants to take that precaution. If the situation comes worst case now, if employees want to um, reduce their staffing level, what is your, their legal obligations in relation to letting people off? There's two layers to that. The first is in stand down. Dependent upon the contractual and industrial arrangements that employers have with their employees, there are varying stand down obligations that exist for employers. Generally speaking, in certain circumstances, there will be the ability for employers to stand down their employees if, if worse comes to worse. They should do that very, very carefully and have very careful regard and I would suggest get good professional advice around whether or not they're in fact able to do that and if so, quite how they do that. Um, because again, getting it wrong, given that it is something that is covered in the Fair Work Act and is often covered in uh, awards and enterprise agreements, it does carry with it a significant amount of risk to get it wrong. But it, there certainly is that ability there. From a stand down position, you do find yourself in redundancy consideration territory. There are some really important things that need to happen as a part of a redundancy process in order to protect businesses. Businesses um, with fewer than 15 employees have a few less stringent requirements and, and, and obligations put upon them in the context of redundancies, but nonetheless, there are some very, you know, the best practice model is essentially the same for everybody, regardless of, of how many employees they have. And, you know, the, the types of things that need to be taken into account there that are very important to be taken into account are the consultation obligations. Any employee who is essentially covered by an award ought to be properly consulted with as a part of a redundancy implementation process. It is also um, necessary generally as a part of that process that there is a written component to that process. It's one of the things that I regularly see overlooked by employers in the implementation of redundancies. They might speak to the employees in consultation but overlook to follow the written component of the obligation around consultation. There are also some really important considerations to be had around any opportunities for redeployment, how people might be usefully redeployed into roles that they're suitably skilled for, where there are perhaps some vacancies um, within the business, where there can be vacancies within the business. I think those are the key critical things that usually need to be done, but there will be some variance in those things depending on who the, who the employee is, whereabouts they fit in, in the spectrum of things and what their contracts might say, whether an award has application, etc. So we, what about specifically with contractors? Um, what is their full time compared to an actual contractor? Contractors are, are different to employees. A true contractor will generally, for most purposes, and certainly for the purposes of our discussion today, fall outside of the operation of, of the Fair Work Act. You will find that along with casuals, true contractors are in the firing line and, and among the first to feel the brunt in the workforce of um, corporate and, and business decline. Do you have a business idea, but you're not sure it'll work? We have small business toolboxes and expert business advisors to support and guide you through your startup process. Contact us via our website to find out how. Businesscentre.com.au.
Does, uh, does the award notice period still apply if there is a sudden and significant downturn in position need reduction? The award, it still stands even within a disruption like uh, the coronavirus. Yeah, the mandatory or the minimum notice of termination provisions that are prescribed by the National Employment Standards will be the, the baseline minimum and there is no deviation to be had from that at the end of the day. It's certainly not unless the business announces some type of, of rescue package. I can't imagine that that will be the case when you look at that from the employee side of things. But certainly um, the there will be employees with contracts that will quite regularly prescribe even more prescriptive notice periods than perhaps what the NES or an award might prescribe and so usual usual notice periods should still be followed in in any redundancy circumstance okay um, we're going to ask all our guests to give five top tips for employers to look at so yep. can you give us your top five yeah sure thing so the first thing is as we've said get right across and stay right across all of the um, governmental developments and the governmental guidance that's put out and where you need to respond as an employer, make sure you're responding. That would be the first thing. The second thing is understanding what your employees can and cannot be directed to do. So getting a really good understanding around that so that you can inform your options as an employer is a really important piece to the, to the planning aspect and you can't really make those operational decisions until you understand the, the legal position sitting behind it. Understand what leave can be taken generally in what circumstances and ensure that you're complying with all of your relevant legal obligations around that, given what we've spoken about in terms of the risk of non-compliance. Understand your rights around stand down and ensure that you uh, have an appropriate understanding before you're implementing any stand down and equally to redundancies. And from the point of view of um, work health and safety, conduct workplace risk assessments in all of your workplaces, extending where possible to the home offices that you might have people working from, which is unusual to our time, um, and implement any measures that you identify as a part of that approach. Okay, it's time. We're going to have to wrap up our um, show. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Michelle and DWF for being our first guest. Um, if you've got any questions or you want to contact uh, Michelle, please send us a, um, an email or go to our website and we'll pass this information on to um, Michelle. If you are um, a business person, uh, and you want some uh, business advisory sessions, the, the Business Centre is open. We are supported by the New South Wales Government under the Business Connect programme and we provide subsidised advisory sessions. So contact us via reception at businesscentre.com.au. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, Michelle. My name is Gordon Whitehead and thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to the Business Big Bang Theory podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please review and rate us through iTunes and follow and share on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn at The Business Centre.